The following audio is via a Skype call. We're on a mission from God. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy weekend, everyone. I'm Gary Mans. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are snug here in the Sarasota, what were we calling it yesterday? The Anti-Defamation League or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> the Anti-Annihilation <laughs> Demonstration there, but we're here in our little space. Oh, we space were in the devoted. Autonomous Zone. The Sarasota Autonomous, Autonomous District. <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> And we are looking forward to an hour spent with you, and particularly in the very sophisticated, intellectual, spiritual, and mystical company of Reverend Michael Bogar. He's coming along very shortly. But let's say hello to tall guy Nathan at the board. Nathan, how are you, Mr. Miller? Hey, good morning, Gary and Suzanne, and I'm doing great. I actually feel like I maybe lost a couple pounds since I last talked with you, not because I went on a little Weight Watchers weight loss or diet program, but I got a haircut, and I'll tell you, I oh. needed a haircut. I was about to apply for the role of Shaggy in the next Scooby-Doo film. <laughs> well, uh, G- Gary's been looking like a, a Viennese a conductor of the symphony, but I told him, I like it. Let's just wait. And he called to make a haircut appointment. The gal is only cutting hair one day a week. He's scheduled for July 2. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> By, by then, I'm going to look like Dr. Crazy Quackenbush or something. It's just getting unmanageable. But hey, I'm staying in place for the most part, so the embarrassment factor is not what it could be. That's- so we are here today, Suzanne, delighted once again to be in the company of Reverend Michael Bogar. He is a friend of ours, and more than just a friend of the show, he is a personal friend and someone that we look up to for his wisdom and his wit alike. And anytime we've been in Seattle, when we get the chance, sometimes we surprise him when we're in town and we know he's going to be doing a service at one of any number of New Thought and other spiritual communities around the sound. We like to surprise him last time in Kent, Washington. And then we had ourselves a group Starbucks date afterward. That was fun. We did. He And we've taken his classes. So yes, he is also a personal friend. Let me give him his mad props and let's bring him on. We have a lot to talk about today. Reverend Michael Bogar earned his bachelor's degree in biblical studies in 1977, his Master of Divinity from Northwest Baptist Theological Seminary in 1982, his Master of Theology degree from Trinity Divinity School in 1983, and his master's degree in the humanities and depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. Reverend Bogar integrates mythology, theology, personal spirituality, practical philosophy, and depth psychology into the soul-making journey through this world. I will be sure to give out his website again because there's a lot more information, but I'll just give you a heads up. It's michaelbogar.com. And we are so thrilled because today is his sweet 16th time on air with us. Nice. Welcome to Manson Mitchell, Michael. Thank you so much. It's so good to be with you guys again. When are you coming to Kent? Yeah, for the 16th time. (laughs) 
that one, yes, that's right. We have to make the pilgrimage to the Kent Valley. Yeah. We'll pick one of those days where if the wind's blowing more than 20 miles an hour, the power lines will be down in Kent and Auburn. So that's about when we'll show up. We had the worst luck with some of that, I'm telling you. So, uh, Mike, we're just so thrilled to be with you again, as Suzanne indicated. And I tell you that uh, people used to say to me at Center for Spiritual Living Seattle, back on the, the Sandpoint location, it's since moved, lock, stock, and barrel. But nevertheless, I remember the history. And when I would go to various classes, I would talk to people who wondered if I took introduction to the Bible from Michael Bogart. And I said, yes, I did take that class. When did you take it? And I would tell them when I took it. And they said, oh, I took it just the last time it was, you know, six months ago or whatever. And what we concluded is that if you've taken the intro to Bible class from Reverend Michael Bogar once and you take it again, it's like taking it for the first time again, because you are a man whose outlook on life and whose theology, particularly Bible-based and scripture-based theology has evolved over time. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think the word's fickle. Fickle, okay. When I took <laughs> when I took the class from you, Michael, and I was discussing it with Gary, he goes, oh, we didn't cover any of that. And I said, mm -hmm. well, I think he just reinvents the class every time he gives it. I said, well, well, what was your main textbook? And she showed me. I said, well, that's not the one I studied from. And I thought, okay, this is a guy who isn't rutted in his thinking. I like that. Well, and that's kind of the way I feel toward the Bible, in spite of the way a lot of people look at it. It's a, it's, it's a very developmental kind of uh, mindset you find in Judaism. The thing that really intrigued us and what we want to concentrate our uh, interview and our talk with you about today is something that you are going to be doing tomorrow. And actually, to that end, we don't need to surprise everybody with that at the end of the show. We can tell them right now where you are going to be tomorrow morning and what your topic is, and we can launch from there. Yeah. Um, what title did I give you guys? It was Four Stages of Mysticism? I believe that was it, yes. I condensed yeah. it into a rhetorical question. What's a mystic like you doing in a place like this? Which, which place are we talking about, this radio show? Well, yes, uh, for starters, and then tomorrow you got the big stage. Right, yeah. They're, they're, we're actually going into the uh, to the location of the church. They have the service in the church with nobody there. Well, there's like a few people seating the, you know, the pews, but it's it's on site, so that should be interesting. Never and spoken to an empty church. Well, I guess I have. And that will be either on Facebook or on some platform where people can see it, yes? Yes, I, I don't know which, but yes. It, it, says, it says, watch us on live stream or Facebook, and that is for the Center for Spiritual Living Seattle. And the title, I pulled up the uh, email I got, it says, Mysticism, the Four Faces of the One in a Mystical Soul-Making World. And so... Just to give you a heads up, Michael, Gary and I will be there tomorrow, since oh, we can not per, not li physically. live stream it. <laughs> we said, well, we're, we're going to have our brunch, and we're going to live stream it here in uh, Sarasota. So we're going to be in the audience, even though you don't know it. Well, I believe you're well, doing two great. services, right? right? 9 and 11 Pacific time? Um, I think so. 
I just know I have to be there by 8.30 and do whatever they tell me to do, so. Well, very good. So when people say mystical, and you're talking, and, and we do not discuss mysticism that often on our show, which I said we have to bring Michael on to talk about mysticism because it's not something that we have talked about repeatedly here. So what what is a mystic? What's a good working definition of a mystic? Well, you know, it's for, for me, I love words, as you guys know. For me, words are alive, and there's, you know, th- th- at least four words that are all connected, uh, mystic, mystery, myth, and ministry. A lot of people don't know that ministry is connected to the word myth. And the, the common root of it is the idea of hidden or silence, the word mute. The word mute is kind of the root of the word mystic. So a mystic is a person who has discovered something that uh, is hidden or muted and come in contact. And usually in the you know spiritual traditions, it's the the invisible one, the source um, from which all things come, and it's not an intellectual connection. When it's when it's unmuted to you or revealed to you, it's an experience that goes beyond words. Um, of course, people try to put it into words, but a good mystic is someone that will say, you know, this is impossible to talk about. It's something you have to experience. We've heard that before. Yeah, I and, and I had I had. I yes. had, I guess, what would be called a mystical experience when I was 19, and it was not planned, it was not expected, it was not even consciously sought. Um, you know, I was a second-year college student partying and, and having a good time, and no religious training, no religious background. But I read through the Gospel of Matthew because some friends of mine had been getting into the, the Christian religion, and... Um, one night when I finished reading through the Gospel of Matthew at the close of the reading, I set the little Bible down beside my bed, and um, it was an, not an audible voice, but it was a very clear um, in my mind. It said, believe. And I remember asking back, you know, in my mind, believe what? And I, it said it again, believe. And I folded my hands and said, okay, I believe. Next day, I walked out to get in my car to drive off to college and stopped halfway to the car and looked up into the sky, and it was like the whole universe was connected, and I was a part of it. It's an experience that was so, is so unforgettable that it has put me on the course that I've, I've been on since, you know, looking at this, this muted mystery. For a moment there, it was unmuted, and I had this sense of connection that and and walked in this cloud of unity with that presence for about six months to a year, and um, there's been nothing like it. And part of my pursuit is what was that experience, and how what what do other people have to say about it? And and just the whole topic of mysticism came from that one experience. And I would say it was an experience with Jesus the Christ. So for me, it was. That's what's gotten me into it. Well, I have a couple of ways I can go by way of responding. And it's great to share our experiences. Like, how'd you get started in this? How did you get on the path? Uh, I love to hear people's stories. Yeah. In my case, I can remember two things. Uh, the, the shorter and the more dramatic one was late at night, I was taking a drive in Brea, California. They're in North Orange County. And I remember 
I was listening to the radio. One of my favorite songs was on. And I passed, looking to the left, between two buildings, there was this huge harvest moon. And it was suspended in the air, very close to my naked eye, very close to some nearly abandoned railroad tracks, seldom used. But here between two buildings in beautiful downtown Brea, California, this orange harvest moon in all its fullness suspended, as it were, over these old railroad tracks. And it just happened all of a sudden. It was like, I think, what the Zen Buddhists would call a sattari experience. I thought, there is no way that all of this happened by accident. Looking at this right now, it is so gorgeous and it's unrepeatable as a moment. I am having this experience alone right now, and I'd love to tell the world that there is no randomness to the physical universe. It has to express some unimaginably great principle behind it all, and that's why I believe in a creator, even if the creator is not an old bearded man sitting on a throne in heaven. Yes, that, that experience, and a lot of people have it in, in many, many, many different ways, but it's that experience that, even as you tried to articulate it, Gary, I'm sure you found yourself thinking this doesn't even begin to touch what happened at that moment. It's impossible Correct. to speak it that's or right. write it. Yeah. So it was that, only the that's attempt. Kind of, that's kind of the root of it, and and the focus that I'm on right now with, with the talk tomorrow, and I'm actually doing a class right now, CSL, um, each each week on this, is to look at mysticism as something that's been kind of stereotyped and and too narrowly focused in this culture. Mostly, we focus on mystics as those who have done or experienced what you and I just described, and it is that. But I'm suggesting that when you look at the world's religions and mythologies on this topic, there's this notion that that interconnected puzzle that is this greater reality is all mystical. So that every there's a sense in which every experience we have, whether we know it or not, is a mystical experience. You know, going through this, this COVID situation, watching these protests, um, uh, our own personal, you know, crises, etc. You know, a, a, a lot of the the professional mystics, I call them, will often say, there's no moment when you're not in the mystical experience. But it's typically those moments when you feel it so deeply that you name it and describe it as sort of the peak moment, but that every bit of the process is a mystical process. And to see that in, you know, enables a person at some level to see that even when you go into the valley and into the, the, the depths of the underworld, which is another place I had a very mystical experience when I lost my son. Um, every place in the process is part of the mystical journey. Michael, <clears throat> I also had an experience, interestingly enough, while I was driving, um, when I was young, when I was in college. And I'm hearing you tell uh, an experience you had when you were 19 and Gary had an experience when he was young and I had an experience when I was young. And it really begs the question of, do we uh, have these experiences in our younger years? And then as we become more acculturated, we're, we're kind of like seen it, done it, bought the t-shirt. And do we just not see 
those same kinds of experiences or have the same experiences of life when we're a little younger, a little newer, a little, you know, less uh, world weary than we are in our 40s and 50s and 60s. Do, do you have a sense about that from talking with people? Yeah, uh, the, I guess the short answer is yes. Uh, a lot of people in their, I don't know, that transition from about 15 to 25 will talk about having experiences, and oftentimes it will draw them into some sort of religious community or spiritual community or pursuit or whatever. But I've also talked to people, you know, in other years, older years, that have had them as well. Um, but I do think there's something to what what you just said, that there is that transition from infancy and um, adolescence into the adult life that it often sort of sets us up for that kind of experience. It's, it's a very stressful period, but we don't even know, I think, a lot of times that we're stressed. And... That stress or that that wondering, you know, what's it going to be like? What's my life going to look like? Sometimes I think sets us up for that experience. When but I have to people... also say that there are, you know, a lot of people, I learned this early on, a lot of people that I talk to say, well, I wish I could have had that kind of experience. So there are a lot of people that don't have that experience as well. I think that needs to be spoken right up front. They don't have that experience, and I wonder, Michael, if they seek it either on a path of religion. I've heard it said just recently that Zen Buddhism is the port of last resort for people who don't know what else to do with their lives. I don't know that yeah. that's true, but I found it intriguing. And yeah. other people that will look for passages that can be marked. And that's the tough thing, because you touched on that a moment ago. We don't know where we are on any given day. I think that's one of the reasons why we have mystical experiences, to wake us up from a source unknown, and yet there are ways of moving forward in life when you didn't think you were moving forward at all. If you're a bird and you're cracking through the shell when you're born and you get out there, now you're in the external world and you had to struggle to break the shell because if you don't do that, we've come to find out, you won't survive. You have to go. You have to overcome that resistance, and so that's a right. way of not only marking uh, your existence in the world as a physical creature, but also passing the first test. And then, now, can you be fed by the mother? Then, eventually, you have to fly out of the nest. You'll, the eagle stirreth up her nest, and you have to leave. And then you go and make your own way in the world. These are things that are observable. But how many times have we had mystical experiences when we were experiencing what is known quite commonly as the long, dark night of the soul? I've been there, Suzanne's been there, and God knows you've been there. It, it's yeah. the hanging in in the middle of that that really tests your character. And I would say, you know, actually develops your character as well. You know, one of the things that I find in reading this mystical literature is that experience of the darkness or the depression or the going into those places of feeling forsaken. You know, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's very common to the mystical experience. And when I had that experience at the age of 1920, about a year into it, it, it sort of evaporated, and I went into a deep, deep depression because I'd been so cradled in the palm of this mystical presence 
And then suddenly it was like that palm turned over and dropped me into the world and said, you know, here you are, now go live. And I actually came across a, a at that point in when I was in college in this deep, dark depression because I'd lost that presence, that I came across a passage of Scripture in the New Testament in the first little letter to John, it's called First John. And in there, John writes in the second chapter, he says, I write to you fathers, that is, mature ones, because you've known the Heavenly Father. I write to you um, young, or actually starts out, I write to you infants or young ones, because you've known the Father. And then he says, I write to you adolescents, because you are struggling with the wicked one. And then he says, I write to you fathers, mature ones, because you have known the Father. So I, it dawned on me that there were at least three groups of people that John was writing to, and they were all mystics, but there are different kinds of mystics. There are infant mystics who get picked up and cradled. There are adolescent mystics who go through the dark night of the soul. And then there are the mature mystics who are the ones who have gone through the valley of the shadow of death and have this a similar experience that the infants had, that is, a, a intimate knowledge of the Father or God, but it's it's deepened by going through the valley. So all of that's mystical, and what I'm trying to do in this class is to get people see that oftentimes the pursuit of that infant experience, again, is a sort of mystical regression. It's like maybe we're going in the wrong direction. You know, instead of going through the troubles, we're trying to meditate our way out of them or to get to some sort of union, when in fact those troubles may actually be putting us in the brew that's um, going to give us a deeper experience of the one. I'm pondering that, Michael, and as I do so, I'm also reminded that for whatever reason, in the online forums in which I participate, this has turned out to be Zen week, so I'm just kind of using these references. But uh, in terms of Zen Buddhism, there's a phrase that has become known worldwide, and that is the concept of beginner's mind. And yeah. the things that you just said put me in mind of that. If 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 it's a regression, that's one kind of experience. But the Zen Buddhists, for example, maybe others as well, try to teach their adherents, their students, to maintain beginner's mind, even after you might have one or two or three degrees. So you're a credentialed person, and yet you are challenged to take on the mind of the beginner. That seems to me to be a pretty tough challenge. It is, but it, it, it seems to be critical or central to this whole mystical process. You know, in Nag Hammadi, where they discovered the so-called Gnostic texts, the 52, I think it was, different texts, there, there was one copy called the Secret Book of John, and I think there were actually three copies of it in these 52. And in the beginning of that, John talks about having this revelation of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ face changes from that of an infant to that of an old man, and it says in the text very clearly there was only one person here, but he had the face of an infant and the face of an old man, and also the face of a servant, but the faces kept switching. So it's it sort of confirms what we were just talking about, that, you know, in that Christian tradition, there is the face of the infant, the beginner's mind, but there's also the face of the mature person who is growing in that mystical experience. And for many of us, I think it's difficult to try to have both of those faces, or at least acknowledge both of those faces of mysticism at the same time. You know, you're an infant, but you're also growing up. 
And, and part of that, Michael, is the fact that that is what we experience here on this earthly plane. Our souls uh, do not age. Our, our souls uh, don't have a, a, an age attached to them, especially for those of us who um, ascribe to the philosophy that we live many lives. So we've mm -hmm. been many times an infant, many times an adolescent, many times an, uh, an elderly person. And, and so that process of aging is something that goes on in this realm, in this physical 3D realm, but our soul doesn't age. So if, if a face can be seen as both young and old and middle-aged and in many different ways, that's almost like looking at the soul, not looking at the person. Does that make sense? Yes, it, it does. And again, in trying to put this to words is impossible because there's, there's just so many facets or faces to it. So let me just say, yes, I agree with you. And I would also, from my own experience, um, suggest that the soul does age. That there's an aspect in which it is by it, moving through this world, as John Keats said in his letter before he died of tuberculosis, says that moving through this veil of soul makes or ages us into an old soul. So there is a sense in which, mm, if if there is personal consciousness beyond this life, which is what the Western spiritual tradition teaches, is that we continue to live beyond death, then there is a maturing or an aging process to the soul. And if there is some sort of reincarnation or transcarnation into some other realm, then we, you know, we move into the next realm based on the development or the aging part of the soul as well. So it's not either or. It's, it's you know, the metaphors just, can, they expand because there's, you know, Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher, said soul is deep, no one can know the bottom of it. I'm absolutely it, delighted it, that philosophers in ancient Greece thought of the soul as something that actually could be apprehended on some level while you're still in the body, because that's a whole philosophical dispute among itself. Do we actually possess a constituent soul that is unique to the individual? There's a big question. Yes. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I like the, the, to look at all the different traditions, because each of them, you know, like a almost like a kaleidoscope you turn it and you see a little different image the soul um in many traditions does age and does develop in others as suzanne was suggesting it's just the eternal presence we're immersed in the sea of soul which is eternal um and yet there's a sense a sense that being immersed in the sea of soul we are also individual souls so we are individuating you know, as a, as a soul. So, yes, as a drop of water in the ocean, we're not the whole ocean, but we have all the same properties as all the other drops in the ocean. So I, I do like that idea. Also, this idea of uh, your soul's journey and your soul's growth. One of the things that we have heard people say on our show is that when you heal something in this lifetime, you heal it for all lifetimes. That there, there is a part of when the soul it, um, grows, 
when it when it matures, when it it makes a, a choice for for love and for good, that there's a lot of healing that goes on through even multiple lifetimes. That that there is a soul's growth, not just an individual, but actually the, the soul also uh, gains wisdom for you know, wherever that's going to reside eternally, whether it's in yeah. a body or not in a body. So yeah. I, I do. And we talk about, you know, young souls and old souls, you know, wise people and people who seem to be less wise. And mm-hmm. and I think that there are um, various stages of new souls being born. And possibly, you know, what we've heard is there will be uh, souls for whom they do not wish to incarnate in the physical world anymore. So mm-hmm. maybe they're in an angelic realm or another realm altogether where they're they're um, they're expanding in a completely different arena besides this one of the five senses. Yeah. And that's why I use the word transcarnational because it suggests that we, in some bodily, whatever that is, maybe a photon body, for lack of a better image, move into another realm beyond this earthly realm. You know, Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many mansions, I go to prepare a place for you. That that image seems to suggest that, you know, there, the, the, the term that he uses for mansions there was also used for classroom in the ancient Greek and Roman world. So it could be translated, there are many classrooms in my Father's school, and... Um, your mystical journey, you're done here. We're going to move into the next place for the next phase and phase of your mystical journey. Yes. Good time to take a break. And it's the only one of the hour. We are talking talking to Reverend Michael Bogar. He's going to be teaching a class tomorrow. It's going to be available online. We're definitely going to stock up on our brunch food so we can make it a big party. And 3,000 miles away, we're going to gain the wisdom that will be available to you wherever you are. Check your local time zone. Let's get back to more conversation with Mike Bogar on the other side of a short break. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are attuned to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. 
You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life, but there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it, but only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids, parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accidents survivors waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Dr. Bernie Siegel of Love, Medicine, and Miracles fame. We could all use a miracle right now. On Saturday, astrologer Eileen Grimes starts her radio day with us, and then we join her on her show in hour number two. Two hours of Mance, Mitchell, and Grimes on the cusp of summer. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Mance and Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk 1150. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very own special Michael, Reverend Michael Bogar. We are so happy to have him here today. We always like when he's on our show. Sure. Conversation is always very rich. Um, Michael, if people would like to connect with you, what is your website? And maybe say a little bit more about uh, tomorrow so that people can connect with that as well. The website is my name, www.michaelbogar.com. And it's pretty easy to navigate. There's some articles there that I have published in a lot of blogs. And um, there's one section there, ask the question, what is soul making? And there's a short essay if, you know, people are curious about what what I mean when I use the word soul making. Um, so check that out. And then the service tomorrow morning on four kinds of mysticism. We're going to be looking at you know, mystics, the, the mystical ego, that the ego is, in my view, a, a mystical experience, that all relationships are mystical, you know, whether it's your, with your car, your house, your COVID-19, or a, your marriage partner, or whatever. And then analytical mystics, this is the, the mind that's constantly agitated and wondering and worrying and um, thinking about God or there is no God. I think a lot of atheists are some of the greatest mystics in the world, personally. And then um, there's the mystical mystic, which is the fourth stage, and that's that place of immersion in the one, and it's, you know, enlightenment, satori, sannyasi, what all different kinds of terms for it. But all four of them, I'm arguing, are part of the mystical journey, and we typically focus only on the last one, that moment of enlightenment, and deprive ourselves of seeing that really every moment is a mystical moment. Excellent. And that's at 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific time. So yes. depending on what time zone you are listening in, you may want to tune in to Center for Spiritual Living Seattle and hear and see Michael Bogar on um, either live stream or Facebook. Yep. I know that we'll be doing that and we'll be taking notes too, Michael. 
You mentioned the A word, okay, atheist. This is something I have had occasion to think about recently. This is the perfect time to bring it up. Have you ever noticed, Michael, how people will assume that atheists are one-dimensional figures, like cardboard cutouts, and the bad guy wearing a black hat if you're of a religious persuasion? What I've noticed, Michael, is that I have conversations with people. This goes back many years. Off and on, I would get this. I don't understand how atheists can accept life without God. I don't know how they can just go through life being so unhappy and so dour, so negative about the idea of a God that loves us. And I will say to them something like, well, first of all, I know a lot of very happy atheists. There's Ron, a, Ron Reagan. Ron Reagan, that's right. Not afraid of burning in hell. They have a, a good life going. They derive much joy all the satisfactions available to anybody else. They just don't go to church, right? Whereas there are Christians or there are Jews, there are people of Muslims, there are people who adhere to an Eastern philosophy. You know what? If you don't pay your taxes, the fact that you go to church doesn't mean anything. You're still going to go to jail. If you are of a particular faith and you go to church every Sunday, how do you know how you're going to handle it when you come back from church and find your wife in bed with another man in your own bed on your mattress. And soon you're asking, how could God do this to me? So it seems to me that there's a, a, a prejudice against the idea that people would either doubt or flatly declare that there is not a divine source behind creation with the assumption that if you're an atheist, you must be a no-good, rotten scandal who, uh, scoundrel who thinks you can get away with anything because you don't believe in God. Yeah. Well, that's why I like the idea of stages or modes of uh, perspective, because there are many different kinds of atheists uh, as well. And, you know, you talked about several different kinds of atheists, and, and there are. There are some I have a friend who's an atheist, and he is a miserable, cynical, bitter man. Um, and I also have a friend who's an atheist, and when I talk to him, what he's really doing is he's arguing that the God he was raised with doesn't exist. I, I tell him that, and he goes, no, I don't think any God exists. I said, well, you're always talking about the one you were raised with. So, yeah, atheism, just like everything else, that every other word shows up as a mode of consciousness, you know. The individual is an atheist of a particular kind, just like the believer. That's right. There's not one true believer and not one atheist. Exactly. Yeah. And we yeah, will respond to life with what Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said. When we run into the ineffable, I'm paraphrasing, but when we run into the ineffable, it is natural to respond with radical amazement. I yeah. love that term, radical amazement, and that can be as characteristic of the atheist and the agnostic as of the true believer. That's the good news. Yes, exactly. That, several years ago, I was doing a wedding with an Episcopalian minister on a boat. We were out floating around on Lake Washington. We had the wedding ceremony, and he and I kind of did it together. And when everybody, after the wedding was over, went into the room where they were serving drinks at the bar, and Episcopalian minister and my and I were standing there, and some guy that had been at the bar pretty much all day walked up, slurring, half drunk, and he looked at both of us and he said, "I just want you two reverends to know I'm an atheist." 
<laughs> and this Episcopalian minister looked at him and said, well, I would like you to know that I am too every Monday morning. <laughs> I just, I just loved that because each of us, I mean, you know, the, the true believer typically has moments where they wonder, maybe is this not, maybe this isn't true. And I have some atheist friends that have honestly said to me, there are moments I think, well, maybe there is something more than, you know, just us here revolving on this little blue-green marble. So human consciousness is very complex and fascinating, and we need to create uh, communities where we can explore all these facets of our consciousness. Years ago, I had it when I was in a church, I had a guy come, a British guy, would come every Sunday morning, and he kind of intrigued me because he would slip out. One Sunday, I was standing at the back door after the service for what a friend of mine calls the glorification of the ministerial worm, and standing back there and this English fellow walks out, and he said, I just want to let you know I'm an agnostic. And I said, at this time, I was kind of surprised. And I said, well, why do you come to church here? He said, because I'm open. I'm open to the possibility. And he said, you know, the talks you're doing allow me to come here and move through my own consciousness to see what I really believe. And I think that's true of most of us at some level. We're all sort of on the continuum of belief, and the agnostic is somewhere right there in the middle. You know, when we opened this uh, conversation uh, quite a while ago here, you were talking about the relationship between the words mystic, mystery, myth, and ministry. And it seems like now we're talking about the mystery. If there is a not knowing that is going on, I really don't know, mm -hmm. but there is a willingness to to find out, or as, as you put it so well, that this man was willing to have this information kind of go through him so that he could, you know, come to a conclusion or decide or have a feeling or, or, you know, have another opinion. That's fine. Living in the mystery is something that we do as human beings. We just don't know. We don't know you know, when our last day is, we don't know, you know, how it works. We don't know if we're coming back. We don't know if there's an afterlife. There is so much that we don't know. And living on this planet is all about living in a mystery. And so I, I yeah. like how that's connected to the word mystic. Yeah. Yes. And, and the root word mute, meaning that we somehow are sort of thrown into this world, you know, using existentialist terminology, thrown into this world without that's on in a muted state. We don't know what is around us. You know, C.S. Lewis, a brilliant Renaissance scholar, he was an atheist in his 20s, and um, he said one of the things that brought him to faith in Christ is what he calls the argument from desire, which has to do with trying to figure out the mystery. You know, when we're hungry, we have a desire to solve the mystery of the hidden food. Where's the food? Um, you know, sex. We have this this desire for sex, and we find the mystery, look for the mystery of how to fulfill that desire. And he goes through all these different desires that we have and trying to solve the mystery. And he said, it dawned on me in my 20s that one of the desires I had was to know the meaning of life and wondering whether or not there was a God. And he said, I started to see that every physical desire we had had a fulfillment. That is, we desire food because there's food to be had. 
We desire water because there's water to be had. We desire sex because there's sex to be had, sometimes, anyway. And he said, it dawned on me that maybe the reason we have to desire for God at some level, or even to oppose God, is because there is an object to fulfill that at some level. So, for some reason, we've been put into this world searching to search for the Easter egg, and um, it's what most of us do pretty much every day, whether we know it or not. And that's the mystery. That is the mystery, and who knows? Uh, my betting money is that this would be the case. The mystery only deepens and broadens in scope once we cross that rainbow bridge. I'm yeah. thinking of a call-in. It wasn't to our show. There is a show on in the overnight hours where they get into this subject matter as well as ghosts, UFOs, etc., etc. It's rather popular. And one guy, this guy, the subject of the early morning one time years ago was reincarnation. And people were saying, well, now, you know, God created us to have one life and then we're either saved or we're lost based on whether or not we accept Jesus as our personal savior. Mm -hmm. And another person calls up and says, well, I don't think that's necessary. I think God created us and we can belong to any religion or no religion and we will reincarnate. Then someone else would call up doubting the concept of reincarnation. But then one guy calls up and you talk about an eye opener. This gentleman called up and said, I'm an atheist and I believe in reincarnation. Mm -hmm. And I just I must have done a double take listening to my radio. And mm -hmm. he explained himself. I don't believe in the concept of a personal God or necessarily anything divine, but I do believe in ecology. You can look mm -hmm. at natural processes where we practice ecology and recycling on the practical level. Why shouldn't that also apply to human souls or our spirits? And he went on to say, it could well be that we get recycled and that is reincarnation, but you don't need God for that. And my mind went to this notion of going through the pearly gates meeting with other people, and no St. Peter there to let us in, by the way, just entering what we might call heaven or the other side. And can you imagine, Michael, having these souls gathered together on the other side, debating the existence of God? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a scene you probably saw or read, read the book, Carl Sagan's book, Cosmos. See the movie with Jodie Foster? Saw the movie more than once, yes. Okay. So there's a place in there where, you know, she is a scientist. It finally, in this, this vehicle that is constructed, m moves somehow to the other side, into the other realm, the other dimension, through the wormhole, whatever you want to call it. And there she meets a figure of her, her father. And she asks him in, in the movie, how did all these wormholes get placed in the universe? And you remember, Gary, what, she, what he said? I don't recall. No. He said, we don't know they were here before we got here. So uh, it, it was right. so beautiful because it's like here's this amazing network of wormholes connecting the whole galaxy or maybe all the galaxies, and she as a scientist gets to see it and ask the question, where do they come from? And, and that's the, the next question is, we or the answer is we don't know. We're in the dark about that. So, yes, the depths, Heraclitus again, the soul is deep who can know it, um, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty big puzzle to be solved. It definitely is. And in that same scene to which you refer from the movie Cosmos, her father 
appears to her, to all appearances, it's her father, but he explains to her, this is not what we look like. We are presenting ourselves in a way that you can accept. Yeah. It's easy for her. She, yes, she loved her father when her father came to her on the shore of this beach where she had landed. There, mm -hmm. This was the presentation to her so that she could take it in at all. Now, that says something about when you go, are you going to go instantly meet Jesus? Are you going to meet, what if you're a Buddhist? Are you going to meet Buddha? Are you going to meet Muhammad? There, who right. are you going to meet? You'll meet that which presents itself to you in a way that you can comprehend. Otherwise, you would just be landing smack dab in the middle of chaos. Yeah. And, well, just also the idea that her father's consciousness was residing in this avatar, or whatever you want to call it, that resembled her father, his consciousness was still present there in some strange way. Sagan, to me, was a master of mysticism, um, and, and he wasn't a, a believer, as far as I know. Um, and yet I did read somewhere where he said the only problem that caused him trouble as an atheist was the idea of reincarnation as studied by Ian Stevenson and others in children who could describe past lives. Yes. You, I'm sure you've been into that. Oh, yes. Um, he said that's one area that I cannot give an adequate answer for, that these little two-year-old, three-year-old, three-and-four-year-olds uh, three can actually name names and places and events, and then when they're researched, oftentimes they're exactly as that child described. Right. Right. And, so that, and the child is saying that they were there as opposed to maybe just that they see it. You know, it isn't like I see this other life. It's like, no, I was that person. Yeah, I was that person. I was on that plane. It crashed on right. this island, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So they give these details. And it, it could be reincarnation or it could be just that we're all in these interconnected fields or webs of consciousness that, you know, come with us into this life. So... It doesn't necessarily prove reincarnation, but it does prove that there is some interconnectedness uh, between lives. Let me ask you, Michael, uh, my answer to the question is, no, I have not. I have a lot of resistance to it. Have you ever gone through a past life regression? Yes, I, I have. And in short version is I've been obsessed by the Civil War since I was, I don't know, five years old. Um, and... When I became an adult, I went through some work, and the person said, you know, you have some connection to the Civil War. So, yes. And Suzanne has gone through that experience I, I had, as well. Yeah, I had one past life regression, and it just seemed so incredibly real that, um, you know, even today I can pick out the slightest detail of what it is that I saw during that regression it wasn't just a movie. It was that I actually lived at that time. Yes, there's something to it. You know, I, when I do the classes at the college on world religions, we get into Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, reincarnation, and all that. I'll show this this uh, these videos by Dr. Ian Stevenson and those at the university. I think it's the University of Virginia. They've been doing this uh, research scientifically for the last 50 years or so. And and I'll, they'll ask me, do you believe in reincarnation? I'll say, I don't know about reincarnation, but I think the evidence suggests that we are somehow connected to consciousness before we get here. Why not after we leave? Yes. Yeah, very well said. I've had yeah. a, 
any number of people, most people, in fact, that I discuss reincarnation with want to know, and then they tend to answer their own question. They want to know why they can't remember without being regressed. And, and then yeah. we come to this agreement in conversation that, well, if you've lived a hundred times, and some people would say we've had many more lifetimes than that, if you've had a hundred lifetimes, how are you going to crowd that into a single lifetime and be able to distill the lessons from untold numbers of experiences while you're living your current life? There's not a Zen master alive that can pull that off. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the thing that I always come up with is that if you had a hundred lives, you've died a hundred times. And you may not want to think about all the different ways in which you have died from either, uh, you know, injury or illness. You may not want to live through that again. Yeah, and this is a topic that came up in the early uh, church with Origen, the first great Christian theologian in the second century. Um, he considered it as a possibility. And Again, I, I don't personally, this is a personal thing, I don't like to get caught up in the terminology as much as, because that sometimes sets up a roadblock for some people. It, they're conditioned to either love it or hate it. But to take it beyond that, to, as Hillman says, to see through it and to suggest that, well, all right, if you don't like the terminology, can you at least acknowledge the possibility that we're connected to um, something beyond just this little time on Earth? Yes. I mean, Richard yeah. Sheldrake's work, field theory, you know, this idea of living in these interconnected fields, I think, is another metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, it suggests that we have conscious or consciousness, knowledge, awareness, whatever, um, beyond just this sphere that we're in now. Yes. In the yeah. last minute we have, and there's no way to answer this question with anything like a full response, but the next time we have you on, and we will definitely have you on again, Michael Bogar, and that is to discuss where religion, taken in the sense of the original term, uh, religari, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, to bind together. Yeah. Where do you see brick-and-mortar churches going versus online or something that is as yet unborn that still binds us together. I'm only teasing it by mentioning it now, but I talk to people all the time who wonder if the churches they see on the corner of this and that street will be there in five years. Yeah, it's a topic that deserves at least an hour. It's one that, that I spend a lot of time in with, with in the World Religions class. And uh, all I'll say about it right now is I never talk about religion anymore in the class. I always talk about religion, politics, and culture. I call it the RPC structure. Um, there's no such thing as religion separate, uh, separated from culture and politics, religion, politics, and culture. And that helps to answer that question. If the religious institutions, whether it's a synagogue, a mosque, or a sangha, or whatever, no longer supports the culture and the politics of that group of people, it's going to be... Mm, immaterial, because those institutions, those supposedly religious institutions, are directly intertwined with culture and politics. We're going to have you back and have that discussion, Michael, and thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Suzanne. And All right. tune in tomorrow. Google CSL Seattle, Michael Bogar online tomorrow. What an experience that will be. Thanks Stay for tuned. listening, ladies and gentlemen. Stay tuned for Jupiter Rising and join us next Friday. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.